This podcast is a product of the 4th and Inches Network. A podcast network designed to keep Husky fans up to date on their favorite programs around UW. Enjoy the show and go dogs. Go dogs. Go dogs. Hello and welcome back to the Dog and Duck Show. So glad to be on the 4th and Inches Network. Thank you to Mike, Trevor, Kayla, the rest of the gang. Mark, how are you doing, my friend? I'm I'm doing great. I, I got to watch a little Oregon football over the weekend, and, uh, you know, that put me in a good, good state of mind. Well, you know, we are just going to go into this new arrangement with realdog.com with guns blazing we're not going to ease into it we're not going to kind of uh you know slowly bring in duck content uh we're we're going all in so for those of you that are listening for the first time this is the dog and duck show and what that means is that every week mark and i we take time to break down what's happening with husky football with Oregon football, other Husky and Oregon sports. And then as we have time and interest, we'll dive into other sports across the board, NBA, uh, you know, NFL, MLB, college basketball, all those things. But this week, we're going to do a deep dive on the Oregon spring game. Next week, stick around, we'll do a deep dive on the Washington spring preview. And um, so if you're looking for Husky content, um, you're in the right place. But today, you're going to have an opportunity to know your enemy a little bit more by hearing about uh, Mark's report on the Oregon Ducks spring game. But like we do, we normally begin by sharing dog news and then duck news. So as I mentioned, this upcoming Saturday is the Husky Spring Preview. Um, if you didn't get a chance to catch it, I did a special interview with former Husky legend uh, Lynn Madsen, who is leading a push to get uh, Husky alumni, former players, and uh, those from the Don James era to come back and to really rally around Coach DeBoer and this Husky team and try to fill Husky Stadium uh, this Saturday for the spring preview. It's free. If you don't have plans, come out and join us. But, <clears throat> you know, I, Mark, I don't know if you, you were going to talk about this, but, uh, you know, Austin was was pretty full on Saturday for their, their spring game. I think I saw maybe 40-plus thousand people there. Yeah, 42,000. Uh, yeah. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. I, you know, I, I don't know what the odds are of Washington coming anywhere near that number. Um, will we have more than Autzen? Does it matter? I don't know, but certainly there's a new push within uh, at least a segment of Husky Nation to say, hey, let's let's start working towards filling up the stadium. And so, Mark, as we transition to uh, duck news in this spring review, I guess part of my first question would be to you is, how important is it to have a lot of people at a spring game? Does that matter to, to Duck Nation? Uh, well, I mean, apparently it does. I This was interesting to me because uh, 42,000, you know, for Oregon, I think Oregon's capacity when it's completely full is is a little over 60,000 if it's standing room only. Um, so that's that's pretty, pretty good. You know, two thirds mm -hmm. full. It had had the feeling like there were quite a few people there, but it certainly was nowhere near like a sellout crowd. But there's a there's a guy over at uh, Nittany Lines Wire dot com who is a Penn State guy who has kind of made it his mission to keep track of spring game attendance nationwide mm. because he's just kind of curious to see what ranks so Oregon's total as of as of right now we, you know obviously Washington and 
I think there's a couple others still to come. Most of the teams have already played their spring game. Uh, Oregon's attendance figures would be sixth nationally and first in the Pac-12. Mm-hmm. The five teams ahead of Oregon are Oklahoma, Georgia, Penn State, and Ohio State. Okay. Those are the five teams ahead of Oregon. And then the four teams just behind them, Clemson, Notre Dame, USC, and Alabama. Mm. So overall, that's a pretty good group to be in. Now, obviously, you can point to somebody like Nebraska and say, well, they've got a ton of fans coming to their spring game, and it doesn't really seem to matter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, as far as how the, the team is performing, you know, mm-hmm. in their actual games. But generally, I mean, that's a list of 10 of the most relevant programs in recent memory. Mm-hmm. And so I would think for both Oregon and for Washington, if, if they're aspiring to, to draw that many to their game as well, I, I think it's generally, it's a good sign, especially with how spring games have become a real recruiting fixture. I know Oregon had several highly touted recruits that they were bringing to that game. And if you go to a game at Autzen stadium and there's 40,000 people, and there were other recruits going to a game at Utah where I believe there was like 10,000 people. And Utah generally has a very, very good fan base, you know, mm-hmm. during the actual season. Uh, but that's just not going to be the same, same type of energy. So I think there's, there's only a benefit to, to packing the stadium. And I'll be very curious to see, you know, what Husky Stadium does. I mean, they're, they're talking about wanting to, to fill the stadium. Well, if they're, you know, if they get 50, 55,000 people, they'd be in the top five nationally in order to do that. So, yeah. And, you know, maybe this is a multi-year, you know, type of process. It seems very unlikely to me that we'll even exceed 10,000 people on Saturday. But this is, you know, the first time in a while that I remember anybody really saying, hey, this is something that we should strive towards. Um, so I think, I think if, if we are going to make that move, it's going to take some, some real culture shifting with the Seattle culture and just kind of this idea that, hey, if the weather's good, there are a lot of other things we could be doing in the city and around the city. Uh, but I agree. I think, um, you know, if you're, if, if you're really concerned about trying to build your fan base, the, the future fan base is, is those kids that come out to a spring preview, they have fun, the weather's nice, there's some yeah. food, there's some activities, they get to take pictures with players. Those special memories form the bond that create lifelong committed fans. And I mean, I, I went to those spring games as a kid. I've got a picture right in my office of me with Napoleon Kaufman as a kid. Um, and like the fact that I'm still holding on to that today says yeah. a lot about the importance of those types of events. So I agree. I, I think if uh, if if Washington has a really poor showing on Saturday, it, it definitely reveals something about the state of the program. Uh, if, you know, 15, 20,000 people show up or more, um, I think that's a really positive sign for Coach DeBoer. Is that typical? Do, do you have any idea what a typical number would be for them based on the past couple of years? I could be wrong on this, Mark, but but if if my memory serves me correct, I want to say that the number was around 5,000, you know, maybe pre-COVID. Uh, okay. So it's hard to really judge the, the numbers with COVID in Seattle um, over the last couple of years. Yeah, but but I I, I want to say it was a pretty you know pretty low number, and yeah. part of that was Chris Peterson. His mantra was you can't win in the spring. Yeah, you, know, you can't you can't win a championship in the spring. Yeah, uh, there are definitely different uh, programs that have done different things to kind of delegitimize the spring game in different ways, where it's right. like you know they. Some some programs remove tackling completely from the game, and it's like you can understand why fans aren't really going to want to turn out for a game that has literally no tackling. Uh, but they do it out of a concern for injury and stuff like that. And so there's right. there's different ways 
to approach it. But again, you know, reading the, the list of names that we started with, like it seems like, you know, like Alabama always treats their spring game as close as possible to a real game in terms of players tackling each other and, and everything mm. like that. So uh, that seems to work out for them. Yeah. And of course they've got five-star depth, you know, <laughs> yeah. all down the bench. Right. So if one guy gets hurt, there's, you know, five other guys waiting in line. And these days, if five guys get hurt, then they'll just, you know, pull into the transfer portal and get another five, four-star guys. So yeah, Alabama plays by its own uh, set of rules, but but you're right. I, I, I think, you, you know, Chris Peterson's mindset was definitely about, um, you know, avoiding catastrophic injuries to key players. And as a result, that definitely took away the sizzle from the spring game. Speaking of spring game, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about Oregon's spring game. Uh, Mark, first of all, what were kind of like two or three major takeaways about what you saw under this new coaching staff, Dan Lanning, Tosh LaPoy, you know, that defense, and then the the Dillingham, uh, you know, offense. What did you see? Maybe what what were the couple of two or three of the big takeaways for you? Yeah, I mean, this is always the difficult thing to evaluate in the spring game, right? Is, you know, is a, is a receiver running wide open a great receiving play or is that a blown coverage, you know, is, a, is this putting pressure on the quarterback uh, a sign of a really outstanding defensive line or a breakdown on the offensive line? Like everything you see in a spring game, it's like a two-edged coin. But if, if I'm trying to kind of objectively identify some, some big picture takeaways, I, I think these would be the things I would start with. One, it appears that at the quarterback position, uh, it's an open competition, but it does seem like Bo Nix has has the lead on Ty Thompson and Jay Butterfield. Uh, I think they combined, that trio combined for like four or five interceptions in the spring game, uh, which to say four or five interceptions in one game isn't totally accurate because it's two games worth of offensive plays, you know? but each of them threw at least one, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the ones that they threw were pretty cringe inducing, you know, like it was throwing into triple coverage to a guy that you shouldn't throw the ball to, but they also all had some nice moments. Mm-hmm. And so uh, none of them looked, you know, totally out of their depth. And yet uh, Bo Nix did look like the one, you know, who's maybe most ready to just step in there and, and play against a good team. I mean, they have to play Georgia the first game of the year. So having a guy that's a three-year starter would probably be a little more comforting for the coaching staff than a guy who hasn't started a game yet. Uh, so that's, that's one thing that I know is at the top of the mind for all Oregon fans is kind of who's going to win the quarterback battle. And I think mm-hmm. Bonix transferring in kind of gave most of us the thought that, that it was probably headed in that direction. And, and I think the spring game Serve to confirm that a little bit, but also, you know, if either of the two backups have a really strong, you know, fall camp, you know, potentially that could shift. The second thing that I think uh, in terms of the on-field thing that was most interesting is uh, last year's offense was infuriatingly reluctant to throw the ball downfield. And a lot of that was kind of blamed on Anthony Brown's lack of accuracy on the deep ball but then a lot of it also kind of was turned into criticism of Mario Cristobal and having a very conservative kind of ground and pound approach. Mm. And the word out of, out of the spring camp was that Oregon's offense was going to be much more wide open this year, mm. that the offense that Kelly D- Dillingham would be putting together would not just be a replication of the offenses that he coordinated at Auburn in Florida, because in those cases he was working for another head coach where he's, kind of installing their scheme, but this would be much more of kind of his own creation and watching the spring game. That was true. I mean, the very first play was a 70 yard completion to one of the receivers. Uh, There were several touchdown passes or plays that set up touchdowns that were long, deep passes. I think Oregon's wide receiver depth is probably one of the strengths of the team this year. And so for Oregon fans, I think there is some, some real genuine excitement that, you know, there is 
Oregon has ample skill players on the offensive side of the ball. And so if they can find a quarterback who's capable of hitting some of those guys downfield, that that could give the offense a dimension that it really just didn't have mm-hmm. last year. And last year, it still was a, a pretty good offense at times uh, in most games. But this year, I think there's, there's a thought that, uh, that it, it, we could be in for, for a more dynamic offense than I think uh, I thought we might be in for when we hired this unproven offensive coordinator in Kenny Dillingham. The third takeaway I would take is, is an off-field thing, but I think uh, applies to the culture that Dan Lanning has created. And that is, there was a huge alumni presence at this game. If you remember in the off-season, Warren, the Oregon alums made a big push to try mm-hmm. to get their guy, Justin Wilcox, hired, and then that didn't go through. And this open letter was leaked that was signed by all these well-known alums. And and it kind of became this, this crisis within the program of you have all of these noteworthy alums that are kind of feeling distanced. Well, Dan Lanning has done a really great job of reaching out to a lot of those guys. And so you had on the sideline, honorary coaches, different roles. You had uh, LaMichael James was there and DeAnthony Thomas was there and Haloti Nada was there. And you had all of these different kind of players um, from the past mm-hmm. interacting uh, Nick Aliotti, longtime defensive coordinator, was calling the game on the Pac-12 network, and they're constantly doing like in-game interviews with these guys. Where Aliotti mm-hmm. is, is reliving old times, you know, he's telling Anthony Thomas, "Hey, every time I think of you, I remember that run you had in the Rose Bowl or something like that." Like, mm-hmm. and and there was just kind of this sense of like almost like a family atmosphere of like, oh yeah, all of these guys that that for Oregon fans meant a great deal in kind of building up this program into what it is. It's like they were all welcomed back with open arms. And there was even a, a tweet that came out from uh, Akili Smith, great Oregon quarterback mm-hmm. in the late 90s. Yeah. And he, Cincinnati Bengals fame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't yeah. didn't do so well in the NFL, but a, a really great college quarterback. And uh, he tweeted a highlight reel of his teammate. It was a running back by the name of Saladin McCullough who was a really great running back for Oregon in the late, late nineties. And he tweeted out a highlight reel and said something to the effect of, um, you know, after coach Lanning kind of reached out, I made sure that, that he came back to Autzen. This was his first time attending a spring game since he graduated, you know, but gotta, gotta remind these young guys, you know, what this was built on or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then LaMichael James retweeted that and and said something to the effect of of that Saladin McCullough was the goat of Oregon running backs or something you know paying homage which is not really true Michael James is is, you know is the goat as far as that goes but but it was very much kind of this sense of these old um these older guys who kind of put in their time in really bringing Oregon kind of bridging that gap of Oregon from being kind of the lesser program to being a, a real player in the Pac-12 and, and nationally that are, are feeling kind of this draw to come back to the program and reinvest yeah. and, and be a presence. And that's the type of thing that I think culturally can have a huge impact because you've got guys, you know, Haloti Nada was a terrific NFL player, you know, mm-hmm. probably a borderline Hall of Fame caliber defensive lineman, at least at his peak. And that's a guy where if he's back on the sidelines and you've got a couple defensive linemen there on a recruiting trip, and he's talking to them or, or you've got a couple of running backs and they're talking to Michael James about the year he was a Heisman finalist. Like that's the, that's the type of thing that really can, can build on itself. And so I think the effort that Dan Lanning has made to energize the alumni base was much needed and, and is already very evident. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. You know, just, it's interesting that there's so many mirroring storylines between the two programs and, you know, the, the, the quarterback battle, you know, certainly the Huskies are going into the spring game with, with not a lot of clarity about who that might be. Although similar to Bo Nix, uh, Michael Penix Jr. is being, you know, predicted as the most likely candidate to take that lead role at quarterback. Um, You know, you, you mentioned that Oregon's offense seemed conservative to you. And the first thought that crossed my mind was if Oregon's offense was conservative, Washington's offense was the chastity belt of, (laughs) 
of, of any kind of aggression whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, uh, we, we're looking forward to seeing that new level of aggression as well. And then it certainly seems as though Coach DeBoer and Lanning are mirroring one another with their real intentional effort to try to reach out and rebuild relationships with former players, alumni, and even former coaches uh, who have come back and spoken to the team and, and those kind of things. So, you know, Mark, you know, we, we kind of know the bio about these three quarterbacks, Nick's, you know, transferring from Auburn. He's obviously got the greatest level of experience. Uh, you know, um, Ty, uh, what's his name? Ty Thompson, Ty Thompson, the, the five-star Butterfield, kind of the, <clears throat> maybe the guy that's, you know, the, the under the radar guy of the, of the three, but, you know, not looking at their resume, not looking at their, their star ranking. When you watch them on the field this past Saturday, who was the guy that you thought, okay, this guy clearly has the highest ceiling. Who's the guy that you think if he's, if he's fully maximized, he's going to be the guy that could take us from Pac-12 contender to potential, you know, uh, national contender. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the answer to that is is Ty Thompson, although I have to be honest, Warren, and say that I don't think I've necessarily seen that as much as I've heard that. Like, you know. Right. And that's what I'm wanting to get at is forget what you've heard. Yeah. What yeah. did you see? Yeah. And and the little bit that I saw, I would have to say, like, well, you know, I started by saying it looked like Bo Nix was ahead of the other two. And I think I would say that. I've also seen more, I've seen a lot of Bo Nix over the last three years at Auburn. And so there is a sense in which, and, and knowing that he's a senior is which I'm like, well, but Bo Nix has a ceiling. Bo Nix might be a little better this year than he was in his last three years at Auburn, but probably not light years better. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, but, but I don't know that, that that necessarily means that he shouldn't be the starter this year. Like, I think if, uh, if Ty Thompson has say the higher ceiling, uh, and maybe maybe I would say that Ty Thompson over the next three years has a greater chance of leading Oregon to that hallowed ground than Bo Nix does this year. That doesn't necessarily mean that Ty Thompson should be the starter this year. Right, and, right. And it was interesting. There was an a interview that came out with Nate Costa, who's a former Oregon quarterback who was on the coaching staff last year uh, with Mario Cristobal and is now on the coaching staff with Nevada. And he was interviewed about the quarterback situation last year and kind of, you know, the behind the scenes stuff. And essentially what he said about Ty Thompson was the reason why he never got the job over Anthony Brown is the coaching staff saw that he had the raw physical tools to be the quarterback, but he had difficulty processing the speed of the game. He didn't play mm -hmm. a, a great caliber of, of play in high school. And it was just clear that like making those split second reads and stuff that his timing was a little off. And that was apparent the few times he got into a game where he did throw a couple interceptions and it was apparent in the spring game. I felt like uh, the other thing that he said is that Jay Butterfield doesn't have the raw skills that Ty Thompson has, mm -hmm. but has the most accuracy of any quarterback on the roster. Right. And so it is kind of this catch 22 of like, you can mm -hmm. go with the experience, you can go with the raw physical talent, you can go with the accuracy, <laughs> like, you know, nobody's got all three of those things. And so you know, how that all plays itself out will be really interesting. No, that is interesting. And, and again, it is, it, it's so fascinating just how the, the storylines in many ways are so similar. You know, we've got a five-star quarterback that we really don't know what that's going to amount to. We've got kind of the unheralded guy, albeit the guy with 15 games of starting experience in Dylan Morris. And then we've got the transfer quarterback who, unlike uh, Bo Nix, uh, has actually played under the offense of our current head coach, Kalen yeah. DeBoer, and under DeBoer's tutelage, really thrived at an exceptional level at Indiana uh, University. 
But the big question for, for Phoenix has been, can he stay healthy? Right. And, you know, what happens if he's not healthy? What will happen to the, the team uh, under Morris or Heward? So, there, you know, there are some unique similarities there. So you, you mentioned um, the the offense. You mentioned the the crowd, the the the, the alumni. Um, but Dan Lanning is coming in as a defensive guy, yep. and uh, that's really what I think Oregon is banking on is that that they become a defensive stalwart. Was there anything that you noticed about this team defensively? that um you know may may have caught your attention or that seemed like a change of philosophy from what you saw under uh you know mario cristobal yeah i I think um knowing that lanning is such a defensive guy that kind of made me think that you know anytime a receiver is running free and they complete a 70 yarder on the first play or something like that it gave me more hope that that the Oregon offense is going to be good rather than concern that the Oregon defense isn't going to be very good. Like, I just kind of have this assumption that like the defense will be, will be fine. They'll figure that out. But like any success sign of success from the offense, I'm taking that as an encouragement. So, you know, as far as <clears throat> how the defense played the, um, none of the four expected starters on the defensive line played all because of the variety of minor injuries. They're all expected to be fully healthy, you know, for the fall. Um, I, I don't think Justin Flo played Justin Flo, who, who missed all almost all of last season, but had 14 tackles in the one game that he did play. So there are some big names that didn't really play the guys that were in there. Um, you know, they looked pretty good. The defensive line at different times seemed to get a pretty good push uh, up front. And, and I think Oregon's offensive line, which, which returns a lot of guys is, is going to be a pretty good offensive line. So, you know, the, the little things that I saw like that uh, I think were, were promising. I do think that the, the biggest area of concern is probably in the secondary where Oregon lost two guys uh, to the NFL draft this year and lost four guys the previous year. You know, we've talked about Washington being DBU in the Pac-12, but Oregon will, by the end of, uh, by the end of the draft should have six NFL draft picks out of their secondary in the last two years, which is just hard to sustain itself over time, you know? So there's going to be some green guys in the secondary and, and maybe that had an effect in some of those receivers running free in the spring game. Um, So that would be the one area where I would say, if Oregon really gets exploited, you know, early in the season, it would probably be with some young defensive backs, you know, getting lost that, that, that the, even guys that are solid most of the game, if they have the one busted coverage that leads to the 50 yard play, that's the type of thing that I think you, you worry about. But I think overall uh, having, having landing running things gives me a, a, a pretty good degree of confidence in the defense. It's hard to tell a lot from a spring game. Of course, we know that, you know, they, these games are televised. Coaches are wanting to give their players opportunities and experience, but they're not wanting to expose their entire playbook, especially when you're a new coach and you have the element of surprise still in your favor. Um, so you kind of answered one of the questions that I was going to ask ne- next, which is as a Husky fan, you know, if you're looking to exploit this, Oregon Ducks team what you know what's your what's your greatest opportunity you know if this is the the death star you know where is that um you know that one weakness that that Washington might have a chance to uh, to blow up this team would you say it's that defensive backfield I yeah well on the on the defensive side I would say you know you probably want to try to go after the greener players in the secondary and then on the offensive side I would say it's it, whoever Oregon is going to have at the quarterback, there's either going to be an experience deficit or there's going to be, you know, a ceiling to what they're able to do. And I think, you know, throwing everything you have at that quarterback position and, and disguising coverages and blitzes and, and doing whatever you can, you know, Oregon's receivers, I think are going to be good enough that you don't want to, you don't want to be on an Island with them too much, you know? So, so you'd, you'd have to be creative with, with how you do it. But I definitely think, uh, 
especially early on that that the quarterback position is is the biggest question of liability for the Oregon offense. One person that you didn't mention, um, but I think has garnered more headlines uh, for Oregon over the last couple of years than any other player has been uh, Kayvon Thibodeau. Obviously, he's declared for the draft. Some are expecting him to be one of the first five picks in this NFL draft, which as far as defensive players go in the Pac-12, that that's, you know, makes him in in almost borderline a generational type player for this Oregon team. How worried are you about being able to replace what he brought to the team, the pressures that he uh, brought, you know, uh, on the quarterback? Did you see anything that made you believe that uh, Oregon would have an easier time or a harder time trying to uh, replace that talent? Well, again, it's tough to say because so many of the defensive line starters did not play in the spring game. But I, the thing I would point out is that Kayvon Thibodeau was not healthy all of last season. Oregon played multiple games without him. They beat Ohio State on the road without him in the game. And there were several other defensive linemen, including uh, Brandon Dorless, I think will probably be the best defensive lineman returning on this year's team. Uh, guys like that that came in and, and just kind of wreaked havoc. Um, a guy that's close to my heart is DJ Johnson, who used to be a tight end. And I drafted in our Pac-12 fantasy draft as my tight end. And then he was moved to the defensive line. He had one of the best spring games of anyone and is expected to be a real contributor on the defensive line. I had people asking, you know, why did this coaching staff ever have him as a tight end to begin with? He's a, he's a great defensive lineman. So, uh, you know, Oregon's even got a transfer from Washington as one of those guys, you mm -hmm. know, on the front that uh, that they'll be looking to for some contributions. So uh, I think I think the players are there. I think that the depth will be there. Uh, it was not Thibodeau centric last year. As as good a player as he was when he was in there, he was not in there for for some extended stretches of time. And and Oregon did pretty well without him. So I I would expect that would continue to be the case. All right, one more question for you. Um, you know, you mentioned the fantasy draft that you and I were a part of, thanks to the amazing Kayla Olin. And, um, you know, that, that reminded me of a, a noticeable absence on the offensive side. And that is, of course, the, the running back tandem of CJ Verdell and, of course, Travis Dye. Travis Dye, who was really the one that helped me win the, the Pac-12 Fantasy Football Championship. But... Uh, now he's with uh, with the USC Trojans, and we'll be exploring the Lane Kiffin or not the Lane Kiffin, excuse me, the Lincoln Riley offense. But um, what did you see from these Oregon running backs, Seven McGee, and uh, the rest of that crew? Do you think that uh, you guys have the horses to be able to replace some really experienced and productive guys like Verdell and Die? I can say that uh, it'll be very, very sad to see Travis die in a USC uniform, and it, especially if he's just excelling there, yeah. the Heisman Trophy candidate. Not, and I, it, it would be sadder if you know if his season ended with an injury or something like that. Like I'm not yeah. wishing him ill will, but like it's going to be sad watching him excel for USC. He's a fantastic player. Uh, I don't. I don't know exactly how the guys are going to do behind him. Like Byron Cardwell, it seems to be the the number one guy. You mentioned Seven McGee, who's kind of a little. He can play running back. He can play receiver. Um, they had another guy, a, a transfer, whose name uh, escapes me, who came in and and immediately like took off for fifty yards. Uh, so Oregon seems to always just kind of have another back waiting in the wings. Like I mean, and and I'm not trying to be arrogant with this point or not but it but if you look back like 25 years of Oregon football there's maybe two years where I didn't feel good about who the running back was you know mm -hmm. that it goes from it's Jonathan Stewart and then it's Jeremiah Johnson and then it's LaMichael James and then it's Kenyon Barner and then it's mm -hmm. you know uh LeGarrette Blunt or uh Royce Freeman and then it's um 
Verdell and die. And I mean, it just kind of goes from one guy to the next. Uh, and that's kind of the way it is in the NFL now is running back has become the most interchangeable position where you just kind of seem to find one guy that can do what the other guy could do. It's uh, so it'll, I think it'll be a committee approach to kind of replace Dye's production, especially because he was so fantastic as a receiver. So it may be more seven McGee doing what Dye did as a receiver and Cardwell doing what Dye did as a runner and, and maybe one or two other guys having a role in that as well. Um, obviously the fact that they're trying to replace Verdell as well means there's plenty of carries to go around. There's plenty of opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm more looking forward to seeing who emerges than I am concerned that there won't be someone emerging. I'm just assuming that, that somebody is going to step to the fore and really seize the moment there. So we've talked about the running backs and uh, we've talked about the quarterbacks. We've talked about how we, do we replace Kayvon Thibodeau? How does Oregon replace Kayvon Thibodeau? Which, by the way, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday evening. The, the New York Giants have taken Thibodeau with the fifth overall pick. Are you satisfied with kind of where he landed in the, in the pick? Yeah, I think there's something nice about saying top five pick next to somebody's name. You know, uh, I think, uh, I believe Panay Sewell and Justin Herbert were both in the top five. Um, I'd, I'd have to double check that, but I think, you know, to have three years in a row to have a guy taken uh, in the top five is, is kind of a nice little streak that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know who the heir apparent would be on this year's roster to go in the top five next year. I don't know that there's any player quite of that caliber uh, on no. the roster, but, uh, but that's, you know, that's a fun little thing uh, the the expectations about Thibodeau, there seem to be some kind of doubt that is he really like a guy that really loves football. He seems to have these other interests and some people think that's a bad thing. Some people think that's a good thing, but you know, I guess, I guess we'll find out. Uh, I think J Justin Herbert has been a much better pro than I think any Oregon fan really anticipated. He's been, He's been better as a pro quarterback, I think, than he was as a college quarterback. So, you know, maybe Kayvon Thibodeau will, will surprise some folks that way. Maybe he'll he'll be a bust uh, the way that Deion Jordan was, who I think was the third overall draft pick. He was the last uh, defensive lineman to go this high. So uh, we'll see. It's all over the map. I, you know, the last two um, defensive linemen that I can think of from Oregon that really panned out were uh, Eric Armstead and DeForest Buckner, who were on the same Oregon team that played in the national title game uh, against Ohio state. And both those guys have, have been pretty good pros. So uh, hopefully, you know, Thibodeau can, can have some of that same success. So Oregon takes uh, the, the, the top spot for the, the top overall draft pick coming out of the PAC 12. Also in the PAC uh, 12 is at number eight, uh, wide receiver Drake Landon from USC going to the Atlanta Falcons. You know, it's it's kind of surprising to me that that the Falcons would choose to use their pick on a wide receiver. But, um, you know, losing Julio Jones, losing uh, Calvin Ridley, you know, I guess there's a void there. But that that's a, that's a little surprising to me. But I think uh, Drake L L London was certainly – um, the most dominant player in the Pac-12 when he was healthy last year. So I, I hope he'll be able to fully recover and represent the Pac-12 well in, uh, in the future. So uh, the Huskies, of course, are waiting to see what happens with uh, Trent McDuffie, who has been projected to be a first-round pick. Kyler Gordon, uh, some are thinking late first round, maybe second round draft pick. So we'll stay on top of that. But um, Mark, as you look now that the spring game is over, um, you know, spring practice is over, there's going to be less news about what's happening with the team, the players, that kind of thing. What are some of the, the things that you are kind of looking for between now and fall camp as this Oregon team, this Oregon roster prepares for um, playing the defending champions in Georgia in September. Do you think there's going to be any shifting in the roster, guys coming in, coming out via the transfer portal? Uh, or do you think we're pretty well, you're pretty well set there? 
I mean, there always seems to be a little shifting, right? As guys kind of size up, you know, whether or not they're going to be playing or not. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, do all three of those quarterbacks for Oregon stick it out through the entire fall camp? Or at one point, does one of them kind of read the writing on the wall and, and bail? It seems like they're trying to keep that competition open as long as possible to, to keep them all engaged. But I, that's, that's the positional battle that is going to be most interesting to Oregon fans. I think as far as the other, you know, developments of, of the, you know, preparation for the fall, I think the biggest thing is health. You know, there were several guys that sat out of the spring game with, with various injuries. You know, you, you, you want to see a team get really healthy uh, coming into the year. And then I think for me, uh, the kind of the thing that I'm most interested in, in seeing kind of the litmus test for when they play Georgia is how do they, how do they compete on the offensive and defensive lines? You know, for years, like during the Chip Kelly era, when Oregon was just dominating teams in the Pac-12, they would run up against an Auburn or an LSU or some SEC team, and they were overmatched at the line of scrimmage repeatedly in those kind of big nationally televised, you know, games, a couple national championship games, one against Ohio State as well, where, where the line, you know, line play was clearly a disadvantage for the Ducks. And that seems to be something that Mario Cristobal was really intent on addressing. And I felt like the results of that were were kind of mixed throughout the season, depending mm -hmm. on the game. Yeah. But the one game where, where it really seemed to be clear that Mario was doing something was the game last year against Ohio State right. on the road. Uh, I went into the season fully expecting Oregon to lose that game and they played their best game of the season. They led the entire way and their offensive and defensive lines thoroughly dominated Ohio state's offensive and defensive lines and, and were the difference in that game. And so, you know, a lot of the guys who played in that game are going to be on the field in this game against Georgia and I'm just going to be really interested to see. I, I think that's the ultimate litmus test for any team in the Pac-12 that wants to kind of take themselves seriously as like a national title contender. It's, okay, how do you stack up at the offensive and defensive lines? Can you really hang in there for four quarters against a team of this caliber? Last year, Oregon, oddly, they did it against Ohio State. They did not do it against Utah. Right. Yeah. You know? And so uh, I wouldn't say that, that the overall marks for the team, you know, showed that they could do that consistently, but it did, it did give some sign of, of the potential to do that. So I'll, I'll be very interested to, to see how that line play grows and develops uh, over these next few months and, and enters the season. If I can, uh, so if I can turn things around, Warren, you know, we've, we've spent some time talking about this game that uh, the Ducks just had. We're looking ahead to this Saturday. Mm. Now we're, we're the Huskies are getting ready to take the field uh, as a diehard Husky fan yourself. What are, what are some of the kind of the questions that you're looking to answer yourself uh, in, in examining the spring game and, and reading the recaps and, and doing everything that a, a fan such as yourself is, is going to do over the course of the next few days. Yeah. You know, I think uh, one of the things that um, we already talked about a little bit earlier was what kind of a vibe is there going to be on Saturday, you know, and the weather could be a part of it. Obviously it was a beautiful day in Autzen for that game. They're predicting rain this Saturday uh, for the, for the Husky game, for Husky spring preview. So that can have a, an impact, but I, I want to see that there's some energy in the stadium and some excitement about this team. And, uh, you know, I think um, it's hard to read where people are really at just by social media, because sometimes the negative voices can be the loudest on social media. Um, but, but yeah, I want to see some energy some some excitement and I think um I think that that that's where Kalen DeBoer's uh, offense has the possibility of bringing some of that enthusiasm that we've been missing because last year's offense was so depressing and it was so just um mystifyingly bad 
that that it it just took the air out of the the sails it took the the wind out of the sails of this husky squad so i want to see an offense that's really aggressive that's firing that's taking chances and um you know is able to get the ball into the hands of who we believe to be some of our most talented players which are our wide receivers jalen mcmillan uh roma dunze jalen polk giles jackson taj davis these are guys that we believe that if they can get the ball in space they can make uh game-changing plays and so i i really want to see that on some level and then I think conversely, we've got um, some really unproven guys uh, in the defensive back position with, with Trent McDuffie and Kyler Gordon moving on. And so I'm really curious to see how they kind of mix and match some of those defensive backs on, sa on Saturday. I don't anticipate that this is going to be the, the final roster, but um, a couple guys that I'm interested in seeing uh, one is Elijah Jackson. He was a guy that Jimmy Lake spoke really highly of last year in spring. He never really um, got a lot of action on the field, mostly because of uh, McDuffie and Gordon, but also because teams just weren't passing against our defense because they didn't need to. The, yeah. the run defense was was so porous last year. The other thing that I'm really interested to see is um so the the huskies have uh, with this new william inge um you know schmidt morell defense that what they have is a, a position that that they've brought from fresno state called the the husky position and that that, that was the name for it before they got to washington and uh, this is a position that's kind of a uh, a nickel linebacker type of hybrid. And, uh, you know, Dominique, uh, uh, Dominique Hampton is a guy that, that a lot of people are slotting for that position. But I want to see what they do with that. And I also want to see whether or not we're going to be taking a, a more aggressive, um, you know, kind of slant with our defense. Mm. And, uh, you know, we talked about this, Mark, at the end of last season, um, after we finally, you know, lost that, you know, four or five year stretch of games holding teams underneath 35 points against Washington State in the Apple Cup. And I kind of said, I'm, I'm glad that that streak is over because I feel like that conservative uh, bend but don't break mentality became our undoing this year that yes we we were holding teams to fairly low scores but we were allowing teams to just dominate the 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 time of possession limiting our offense's ability to be able to make plays and we weren't creating any negative plays we weren't getting a lot of turnovers we weren't getting a lot of sacks and so i want to see a little bit more aggression even if it means giving up some bigger plays uh, throughout the season. So, yeah, those are a couple of things that stand out to me. Is, um, <laughs> is the expectation in, in Huskyville that, uh, that the three quarterbacks, uh, Penix, Morris, and Hewitt, are all going to kind of get equal, equal snaps? Is that kind of the expectation? Does, is there a sense that uh, – you know, Penix has the inside track. Is there a sense that one of those guys might be looking to transfer? Like, what? How, how is that? What's the expectation of that going in? I know we'll check in again next week after we get to see them all in action. But what, what's the expectation going in? Yeah, it's going to be fun to see those guys in action. At least I hope it's fun. I hope it. I hope we're just high fiving and going. Let me tell you, Warren, it was purchase. fun for me to see them in action last year, especially yeah, sure it was. and Sam Hewitt. <laughs> but um, so I think the word that's coming out of camp is that uh, Penix is obviously the most experienced, the most gifted, the most familiar with this uh, Kalen DeBoer offense. He's the front runner. It's his job to lose right now. 
the 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 battle for the backup position seems to be trending towards Dylan Morris uh, because of his experience and because a lot of people think that he really got a raw deal last year having to play in that John Donovan offense. Um, the 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 frustrating part of that is the fact that we've got this five star legacy who has not you know just forced his way yeah. to the top of the of the ladder and it, it it's not necessarily um you know a complaint or a criticism directly to 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 Sam Heward but it's more kind of a, a a little bit of a disappointment that the five star talent and ability hasn't just fast forwarded him past everybody on the roster. And so I you know, is he a bust? No, no way. Not there's no way you can say that at this point. He's only entering into his second college football season, second spring camp. Um but but I think if anybody had any ideas that Sam Heward was going to be Trevor Lawrence um, in his, you know, yeah. freshman year, those ideas were, were, were squashed. And now we're trying to kind of recalibrate and manage expectations to say, okay, maybe Heward's time is not this year, maybe not even next year, but as a junior, you know, he's, that's, that's his time. So I, I think that's, um, you know, that's kind of the challenge with, with the expectations that he came in with is that for him not to jump to the front of the line feels like a disappointment, even though, again, he's a true freshman with the least amount of experience on this team or no a true sophomore, but a guy coming up off of a true freshman year with, you know, one start. So I'm, I'm, I've got to wonder, Warren, if, if Penix kind of affirms himself as the starter over the course of the next few months, and Heward is clearly the legacy who's the long-term heir apparent that the fan base seems to have the most interest in his future. Like, at some point is is Dylan Morris, who's been the starter for the last two years, and as you mentioned, really got a raw deal last year. Is in this day and age, like wouldn't you kind of expect that he's gonna be wanting to to be aware of his transfer options, maybe even as as soon as you know, right after the spring game, in order to get into another place and and uh, potentially have a chance to start this next year somewhere. It's a valid question. And in this current era of college football, nothing would surprise me. I mean, if if Morris leaves an hour before the, the spring preview, I, I would not be surprised. <laughs> um, that being said, if you think logically, and, and, and logic doesn't always factor in in these conversations, but if you think logically, if if Morris comes out of this thing, as the number two, if he comes out of the spring game as the number two, I would think if I were in his position, uh, that number that number one, uh, Penix has only got one year of eligibility. So worst case scenario, you're still the front runner to regain your starting position after Penix finishes this year. Uh, but Based on Penix's injury history, he's yet to complete an entire college football season. There's still a really strong likelihood that if you're the number two guy, that you have a strong chance of becoming the starting quarterback at the University of Washington under Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubbs. Uh, that's not a bad deal. So logically, He's got a really good chance of being able to start games this upcoming season at the University of Washington in a really great offense, you know, at least hypothetically. If you look at the other option, 
if he's going to transfer to another college football team, he's not going to get as many suitors as he might think he will because coaches are going to look at what he put on tape last year. And I don't think there's going to be a lot of guys that are saying we've got to bend over backwards to get Dylan Morris on, on our roster. I don't, I mean, unless he just feels like he's got no chance uh, if he feels like Heward has superseded him and now he's at the bottom of the roster, uh, I, you know, to me, his best play is to stay at the University of Washington. Well, and I guess the other uh, variable there would be if, is he interested in transferring down a level? Like, does he want to go play quarterback in the Big Sky Conference or something like that? Sure. You know? um, but yeah, you would you would think if he if he's committed to wanting to be a starter at a power five school then sticking it out in washington is probably still his his best chance to to get a spot well it's going to be a fascinating thing we really are in these i mean it is eerily similar for oregon and washington right now you know with new coaches the transfer quarterbacks with names ending in nicks (laughs) the five-star quarterback who's waiting in the wings who hasn't really like fulfilled the potential yet, you know, the third quarterback that's kind of lingering that you don't really know how long he's going to be sticking around or what kind of factor he's going to be, or if he could unseat the other two. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's so interesting to kind of watch it all mm-hmm. unfold. And, uh, and I think, you know, for duck fans, there's going to be a lot of interest in how those three quarterbacks play mm-hmm. But also, it's just going to be a lot of giving thanks that Jake Hayner did not transfer back to the University of Washington. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, it would have been nice to have Jake Hayner come back. There's no doubt. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure uh, how things would have played out if Hayner had come back and what that would have meant maybe for the the Morris and Heward dynamic. Yeah. Um, But, you know, as I look at the two scenarios, just purely from a logical perspective, I would say that the more likely scenario of a quarterback transferring out um, would be with Oregon. Because with Washington, you've got, you know, you've got this this transfer quarterback who's played in the divorce system. So I think there's an understanding, okay, he he's got a leg up on me and if he beats me out I can kind of understand why um but then you've got the two backups Morris and Heward who are both local guys yeah and uh Morris has got the starting game experience Heward has got the legacy yeah uh you know factor whereas I would think that you know, the most likely guy to not be here in the fall is Jay right. Butterfield. Right. You know, and is that a, a devastating loss for Oregon? Probably not. Um, but if they if they do lose Butterfield, which could very well happen, and then a guy like Nix gets injured, then you could re- really be in a precarious position trying to scramble and find somebody to – you know, to, to kind of be that backup for the five-star, uh, you know, Ty Thompson. So, well, you know, anything point, can happen. But to your, that, yeah. To the point that you're making, Oregon had another quarterback who was in the mix, uh, Robbie Ashford, who was thought to be right. on, on a similar level to Thompson and Butterfield uh, and was also, uh, he was a multi-sport athlete. He was a baseball player mm-hmm. as well. And he transferred to Auburn which makes sense because he's from Alabama originally. And right. so, you it's know, that's switch. what you're saying, which is, which is where when you've got local kids, there's more of a reason for Dylan Morris and Sam Heward to stick it out and try to compete to be at the university of Washington. Whereas Ty Thompson may look at Arizona state or Arizona and say, eh, you know, I could go there and my parents could drive to all my games. And like, you know, so I, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right that, uh, that those guys with kind of the geographical proximity do have more of a reason to, to stick it out than, 
than the guys that are coming from from out of state. Jay Butterfield uh, is from you know Southern California, a similar situation. Well, it's uh, this has been a good show. Let's go ahead. We'll wrap it up. Of course, dog fans. Um, today we've been focusing on the Oregon team in review of their spring game. Next week we'll look at the Washington spring preview and take some takeaways from that. Uh, but thank you for continuing to listen to us. Thank you again to Fourth and Inches and RealDog.com uh, for hosting this. And uh, for all my dog fans out there, go dogs. And for all my duck fans, go ducks. We'll catch you next time.